coming up. The topic that we are addressing is so very important. We moved to a really wild cowboy town. When I was 17, I fell in love with an Air Force guy. Oh my gosh, he was so handsome. It was the first time in my life when I ever felt like somebody loved just me. One of the things about Japan, though, was my husband was rarely home, just like my father. And just like my father, he drank. But unlike my father, he physically abused me. Whose fault would that be? Mine. Why would they both treat me that way if there wasn't something wrong with me? And my plan was to step out in front of one of these trucks. The other thought is my son will be better off without me. And I heard this voice and it said, Mommy, Mommy. And I stepped back and I turned around thinking I'd see my son, but he wasn't there. Welcome to the Things I Wish I'd Known podcast. We're on a mission to help those of us who feel way too sad, way too often, remember what it's like to feel alive and 100% yourself again. So whether you're here because you're stressed out, feel like your emotions are constantly hijacking your life, or you've just somehow lost your way, your host, Rachel, has got your back. Let's have all the chats everyone told us not to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> like, rebellion. She's a raver, misbehaver, and suicide survivor turned happiness champion. She's on a mission to bring happiness back because let's face it, it never really went out of fashion. This podcast may contain content that is triggering for some listeners. If you're sensitive to certain topics, please check the show notes for full episode descriptions. Hello and welcome to Things I Wish I'd Known with your host, Rachel. I am here today with the incredible Evelyn. She is an author of 17 books and a counsellor who has run international workshops on addiction and also mental health. And she's also in the South Dakota Hall of Fame for her work with um, addiction as well. So I'm very excited to have her here today and to share her story and, you know, her tools and all kinds of wealth of information that she's going to have in in her in her head that we're going to try and <laughs> get out for you guys to uh, to enjoy so welcome Evelyn thank you so much for being here this is an honor and the topic that we are addressing is so very important because it's a topic that a lot of people don't like to talk about I completely agree with you it's a, a big topic though right and it's a sensitive topic yeah, and, and families find a lot of shame when someone commits suicide. And even friends mm. feel like maybe they could have done something. Maybe they could have been there for them more. So this is really important to discuss. Yeah, I hope that people will be able to listen and get an understanding both from the perspective of somebody that has experienced attempting suicide all the way through to you know friends and family hopefully will have a better understanding of how they might be able to help you know if they've got a friend or a family member that they know is struggling or even if people are struggling right now and they happen to a friend or a family member might forward them you know one of these episodes and it might just give them hope to see okay well hang on even though things might seem completely hopeless right now or that I'm there's no way out of this, that actually there is, you know, there's always hope and there's always a way out. And even when we can't always see it, when we're right in it, you know. So I'm, I'm grateful well, The most important here. word is hope. Mm. And something to live for. Yeah. 
And people who commit suicide feel like they have no hope. Yeah. And there is nothing that anyone would miss about them. Yeah. It's really important to, and so I'd like to share with you a little bit about my story, if that's okay. Yes, please do. I'm excited. Okay. When I was a little girl, everybody called me Bubbles. I don't know why they nicknamed me that. And eventually, my brothers shortened that to Bubs. So I was Bubbles and Bubs to my family. And when I was 12 years old, I put a stop to that. And I said, from now on, you guys will call me Evelyn. Even though I, I hated the name Evelyn. And the reason I hated the name Evelyn is because I hated myself already at 12. And I was already um, trying to figure out why I even existed. And my parents were quite religious, but they believed in a punishing God. So my ideas about God were that he was a, a mean, cruel person up in heaven who was just waiting to zap us whenever he had the chance. And I lived with that idea for quite a long time. Mm. I haven't always lived in South Dakota, which is just a small state in the middle of nowhere, and it's actually flyover country. You have to want to be here to get to South Dakota. There's no accidentally ending up in South Dakota. So we're, we're just very small, very rural. And uh, I grew up on a farm. But before I tell you about that, I want to tell you that I lived in Japan for a while. And it was in Japan where I made my first attempt at suicide. Wow. Far How away from home. How old were you when you lived in Japan? Um, from 25 to 29, far away from everybody I knew and not sure of how I could go forward. Mm. Uh, when I was six, one of my earliest, well, actually, when I was much younger, one of my earliest memories was of mountain lions screaming um, outside the cabin where I lived in the hills with my parents. Mm. My dad was a logger and, and, um, he was rarely home, but my mother, every time the mountain lions would scream, my mother's face would turn white. <laughs> Not surprised. It sounds terrifying. And all of us would run and throw our arms around her legs and hang on to her for dear life. Yeah. But eventually we moved from there to a town so that we could go to school. And it was actually in that small town near a morgue where I met my first sexual pervert. And I was five years old. From there, we moved to a farm and absolutely loved the farm. It was, I had horses to ride and pigs to feed and cows to milk and brothers. And, and my parents had lots and lots of family. So our families came there all the time. Summer would be nothing but wall-to-wall -wall people sleeping on floors and couches and in chairs and the kids got to stay up all night because there was no place for us to sleep. So we would run <laughs> wild and look at the moon and have a great time all night long. Uh, and it just went on all summer from Memorial Day to Labor Day. Amazing. Company would come and they would stay. And my mother had 
10 brothers and sisters. My dad had six. So we had lots of fun on the farm. Yeah. One thing, though, I really loved about having family there was my dad would stay home. And when family wasn't there, he was gone a lot. And I didn't know at the time that he was gone a lot because he drank. Um, because he never drank at home. Mm-hmm. But he he was gone a lot. And sometimes his behavior was a little crazy when he'd come home. Sometimes he would be so much fun. He <laughs> would walk in the door singing at the top of his lungs and he would throw money in the air and all of his kids would die for it and find it under the table and under the couches. And in the meantime, my mother would kind of stand back and frown and look at him. And we couldn't understand why she was so mad because he, mm. he was so happy and he was so much fun. Yeah. My mother was a very proper English lady. She has roots in England. Her family owned a shipping line in England. And they came over to America, some of the first settlers. So she was very proper and she had very strict ideas on how we should all behave. So he... But she was just blown away by his charm, always blown away by his charm and mm-hmm. and his manner of cajoling her and making her feel wonderful when he was sober. Mm. We left the farm. We moved to a really wild cowboy town. And this town, they were building the largest earthen rolled dam in the world. And the town was 24 hours excitement, filled with construction workers, lots of noise, lots of music, lots of street fighting, lots of things going on all the time. And we just had a great time with this. And we were in high school. And um, I even witnessed a man get his throat cut one night when I was standing out in my yard because we our yard was right sort of in the center of town and so we could see everything that was going on Mm. and as long as we stayed in our yard we could stay up as late as we wanted to we just couldn't leave the yard right so i was pretty exciting during those times when i was 17 i fell in love with that air force guy oh my gosh he was so handsome (laughs) my brother brought him home and introduced him to me because he was on leave from Casablanca. And he is actually from Pierre, but I had never met him before. And he took me to the prom and that was it. I His Air Force uniform made him look so great. Mm-hmm. So we decided to get married. I was only 17, but and he was home on leave, but we got married while I was still in high school. Mm. And it was the first time in my life when I ever felt like somebody loved me, just me, not me and five brothers, Mm. not me and five brothers and a dad, but just me. So it was a fabulous time in my life to be so young and so in love. Eventually though, the Air Force took us to Japan. And wow, what an experience. It was so amazing to 
be in that country and everything was new. Everything was different. And I was just boggled in my mind all the time by the things that were going on. But we lived in a small Air Force community, so my neighbors were mostly um, Americans and stationed on the same Air Force base. But we did travel around Japan a lot. And one of the things about Japan, though, um, was my husband was rarely home, just like my father. Mm. And just like my father, he drank. But unlike my father, he physically abused me. My dad never hit me. Mm. He could be very verbally abusive, and he could be uh, mean and cruel when he was drunk. But like my dad, he could be sweet and kind and wonderful and generous when he was sober. Mm. So um, whose fault would that be? Mine. Why would they both treat me that way if there wasn't something wrong with me? I mean, I didn't know that anything about alcoholism or drinking. I just mm -hmm. knew that both of them treated me pretty much the same way. And I had no clue as to why that would be. Mm. So Japan wasn't really um, up to date. We did have electricity and indoor bathrooms. <laughs> but other than that, uh, we had Air Force furnished furniture and, and dishes and things like that. Everything was furnished by the Air Force. So, you know, it had been used 50 times before by a lot of other people. Yeah. So there was nothing really, uh, really exciting about our home, mm. except we had a four-year-old son. And he was my sidekick and we did pretty much in japan women couldn't american women couldn't work so we did a lot of things together but one friday and it was a beautiful sunny september day my husband didn't come home and it was payday mm. so that wasn't really unusual he often didn't come home on payday mm. but saturday morning he wasn't home either and I had all kinds of thoughts going through my head. Mm, I bet. By Saturday night, he wasn't home. And I made a big dinner thinking, okay, if I make a big dinner, he'll walk in the door any minute. Yeah. But he didn't. So my son, Brian, and I, we ate alone. I, went, I laid awake all night on Saturday night thinking, I know where he is. He's got to be with another woman. Yeah. Because why would he be gone this long? Um, even drunks sober up sometime. So when he walked in on Sunday morning, I had made a plan. And I kissed my child goodbye. And I said to my husband, I'm going to go to the market. I need to get something for dinner. So I walked about a mile to the market where I knew there would be these big, fast go-to-hell trucks. That's what they called them, go-to-hell trucks. And boy, they just went like a bat out of hell, mm. flying down the road. And my plan was to step out in front of one of these trucks. 
And my thought was, he'll be sorry. They'll all be sorry. Mm. Everybody will be sorry they treated me so badly. That was one thought. The other thought is my son will be better off without me because Mm. obviously there is something terribly wrong with me. I hear that so often, you know, with stories of suicide that everybody will be better off without me. Kind of so interesting, isn't it? That like so many people have that same, same thought process. Well, there's a reason why people go there to that thought. And part of the reason is because they've never been surrounded by people who celebrated their specialness or their uniqueness or told them how worthwhile they were Mm. or are. So I got to the market and I stood on the corner and I watched the trucks go by. I I stood there and I watched and I watched the trucks go by and Finally, I saw one coming in the distance. It's like, okay, this is the truck. I'm going to do it. This is it. And I stepped out in the street, and I heard this voice, and it said, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. And I stepped back, and I turned around, thinking I'd see my son, but he wasn't there. There were some Japanese people behind me, doing their, what they do in an open-air market. But nobody was looking at me. Nobody was paying Shopping and, like, not really. <laughs> it's so mad, isn't it, as well, when you think about those moments where there's just, you know, people shopping, like, oh, what apples am I going to pick or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and in the completely same space, there's somebody in that moment of just absolute despair Mm-hmm. of like this is my moment to to end it all and it's fascinating so so was this a hearing your son's voice what was it a hallucination or was it it's just a voice wow it came from behind me and i backed up just as the truck went by and i was so close to it the wind from it almost blew me back up on the street. Yeah. But then I, I stared at the trucks for a while. I turned around and went in the market. I bought a couple of things and I walked the mile home. And when I got in the house, I hugged my son and hugged him. Mm. And he was playing with the car and it's like, <laughs> I'm busy, Mom. I'm busy. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> My husband was sitting in a chair reading a book, and I just went to the kitchen and started cook dinner. Just amazing. But how did you feel in that moment? The moment of just being, like, going from being at the moment of suicide, stepping out in front of the truck hearing this voice behind you you know thinking oh and stepping back off and then just thinking all oh, right i better go home and cook some dinner then <laughs> how does that <laughs> do you know what i mean how does that how does that work for you or how did that feel for you i mean it's it's fascinating isn't it how 
we can almost switch those roles, if you like, from like being in that one frame of mind into like, oh, I'm hugging my son and I'm going to cook some dinner. For more information on how you can bring your happiness back, why not join Rachel's monthly membership or contact her via her website, www.welfordwellbeing.com. In the moment when I was standing there trying to pick which truck I was going to step in front of, my only thought was, it'll be over soon. No more pain. And when I heard my son's voice, it snapped me back to reality. And I stepped back on the sidewalk and looked for him, but he wasn't there. And I don't recall, it was kind of like, I just was numb. Mm. It was like all the blood kind of left my body and I just mm. like a robot. I went in the store, yeah. bought a couple things and marched home. Yeah. However, when I was cooking dinner, I was thinking, wow, that was close. <laughs> I bet. I was also plotting. How do I get out of here? This is enough. What do I do now? And that plot took me another few months. But eventually I I was able to get um, to be sent back to the United States. I think the most important thing of a near-death experience is suddenly you realize I can't be that bad. (laughs) Yeah. There's got to be something that God wants me to do. There's got to be a reason that I didn't do it. There's got to be a reason I'm alive. And what's that reason? Can I ask as well, just in that point as well, if you've grown up in this environment where it's very God-fearing and like you mentioned, that you're thinking God might strike you down at any moment, was there something in that where you were like, well, I, I didn't get struck, I haven't been struck by lightning either for, you know, in inverted commas, like sinning, you know, mm-hmm. so maybe, maybe he's on my side somehow or, <laughs> I don't know, you know, like, because um, I imagine there might have been a fear in there as well of like, oh no, like, what if he saw? What if he saw? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like genuinely. I, I try to appease God mm. all the time. So I, I, I kind of thought of my relationship with God in terms of my relationship with my parents. How can I please him? How can I keep him from being mad at me? How can I do what I need to do so that he won't get upset with me and mad at me. And frankly, when I was thinking about committing suicide, it was like revenge, revenge against my husband, revenge against God, revenge against the world. So it didn't even occur to me that God might have a plan for me until I heard my son's voice and my son wasn't there. Mm. So, yeah, I did give that some thought after I got home. Why am I... Why am I here? Where did that voice come from? Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It was 
got my attention. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad, otherwise we would be sat here having this chat. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened next? You're heading back to the US. I went back to the United States. I lived with my parents until my husband got out of the Air Force. And then eventually we had another child actually. And eventually um, I divorced my husband. And the story to that was he was, you know, battered women back in the seventies didn't have a lot of rights still, even then. No. There were there were not any shelters for me. There was and every time I went for help, someone would tell me, what did you do? Mm. Oh, what did you do to make him mad? What did you do to upset him? Um, so. And that, I guess, you know, it's, well, A, is so wrong and B, so damaging. But also when you've got that belief that there's something wrong with you, as you've mentioned previously, that then is just consistently reinforcing that same story, isn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, there was no one in my life except one brother that I'll tell you about who said, you don't deserve that. Mm. But my little brother, whom I absolutely adored, he and I were very close. We were eight years apart. I was eight years older than him. but we were, And we were very close. But at times when my husband wouldn't come home because he'd be drunk and gone for days, or at times when um, he would get very violent with us, as I would call my little brother, and he would come and help me. And sometimes he would loan me money. And one time when Harold was gone, I had pneumonia, and my little brother took me to the hospital and took care of my children while I was there. And he came, brought me home from the hospital, brought me back to my house. And then he looked at me and he said, you could be somebody. You don't have to put up with this. Mm. You are a valuable and worthwhile woman. And I am never going to help you again. Wow. You have to help yourself. How powerful to have that person to tell you that he was awesome awesome brother but a month later he got killed that was my last conversation with him that's so sad he was riding a bull in a rodeo <laughs> oh i was not expecting that sorry <laughs> <laughs> sorry that's oh this story has got so many twists i'm like okay I wow Wow, so was he, a cowboy? <laughs> was he a full-time cowboy or was, or was he just rode the rodeo for fun? He had been riding in rodeos since he was about 16. Wow. All of my family rode in rodeos. It's like, you know, when you're British, you're like, that is a mad sport. <laughs> <laughs> that is a mad sport. <laughs> I can get horse riding. I'm on board with that, but I'm like, <laughs> I, I, can't, I don't understand. Yep, yep. 
Oh, bless him. That must have been so traumatic. Well, it's a common thing to do in South Dakota. Everybody does it. I imagine it was. And it's, you know, it's country, isn't it? It's it's part of the culture. But I imagine that must have been so traumatic for you, though, as well, to have this person that's now shown up in your life in that way to say to you, like, you're valuable, you're worthwhile, you're, you know, you can make something of your life and then have them, you know, taken away like that in a shock you know, shock accident, that must have been very difficult. It was very shocking. And on my way home from the funeral, I lived about um, 200 miles away from where we had the funeral. On my way home, I talked to my brother all the way. Mm-hmm. First of all, I raged at God. I raged and raged and raged at God for taking my brother. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I talked to my brother and I said, all right, I will be somebody. I will be somebody and I will do it for you. Mm. How interesting as well on that point, the parallels between the story of when you said about stepping out in front of the truck, I'm going to show them kind of, you know, that sort of narrative of like, they'll be sorry, I'm going to show them. And, and now flipping that same narrative on its head to be like, I'm going to show you, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm going to do this for you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. That's it's so fascinating, isn't it? How that same sort of narrative can be flipped, you know, in two different ways. Uh-huh. Both of them driven by rage. Yeah. <laughs> helpful on one side, not so much on the other. <laughs> Anger can be very helpful. It sometimes. can be. It can be absolutely. Yeah. So I divorced my husband and he sat in the garage with a gun and said, if you guys leave, I'm going to kill you all. But eventually we got away from him and I went to college and I got a degree and my plan was to be a counselor. And that's what I am doing. It's incredible. Such an incredible story. Well, there's lots more to it. That's why I had to write all those books. <laughs> I mean, now I can see how you've got 17 books worth of <laughs> It's just incredible, incredible story. And so th- then did you go straight into, you know, straight into counselling and and did you specialise straight away in kind of helping any particular because obviously now you work with mental health and and addiction but did you is that the field that you always worked in or uh when i got out of college the only job available to me with my counseling degree was a job working in a treatment center as an alcoholism counselor And I did that for a few years and I decided I don't want to do this anymore. I'm sick of this. Mm. So I applied for jobs everywhere. No one would hire me. Another God thing. So I went back to the field of alcoholism and mental health when I got a master's degree and uh, started uh, doing workshops around the country. But I was very, very blessed. God bless me all the way because he introduced me to some really powerful people. Virginia Satir was a very famous family therapist in America, and she also worked overseas 
Um, and she founded a family systems therapy that deals with traumatized children. And I actually got to work with her in person. I got to experience her gentle, beautiful counseling. Then I met a man named Father Martin, who was a pioneer priest in the field of alcoholism and who explained it in such a loving way. It's not, it's not a, a bad thing, it's a sick thing. And here's how you deal with it. And so I just was so blessed to learn. And by that time, I myself was an alcoholic. Don't forget to meet us over on YouTube for the uncut video version and additional content of all episodes. You can find the link in the description. And by that time, I myself was an alcoholic, although a closet alcoholic, mm. not, a, not a mean drunk or a person who stayed away from home for days, but a person who drank myself to sleep a lot. Mm. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, isn't there, around alcoholism as well, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of that kind of functioning, as long, you know, as long as you're functioning, it's kind of, or, well, I only have a bottle of wine a night. Uh-huh. Everyone does that, don't they? You know, starts <laughs> off as a glass with dinner and turns into a bottle every night. Or, well, I don't yep. drink at 10. In, it's always that thing, isn't it? Well, I don't drink at 10 in the morning or I don't wake up and need it. Yep. So I'm sure it's all fine. And actually, I think there can be some, yeah, just interesting narratives around <laughs> around <laughs> alcohol. And it's so accessible. I think the alcohol is such an interesting thing because it's so ingrained in society and it's mm-hmm. so easily accessible and often you know if you don't want to drink for some reason people are like oh yeah go on have a drink <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. so even if you're in a position they really where try you're to thinking, force it on you in some cases yes i remember watching this comedy show uh, i'm trying to remember who the comedian was if anyone knows let me know and i'll i'll, I'll tag tag them below i think it was a male comedian and he was saying um it's like everyone tries to make you an alcoholic until they succeed. And then he does this whole sketch and it's really funny about, you know, go on, have a drink, have a drink. Oh, I can't. I'm driving. Ah, that's right. Get a cab. Have a drink. Have a drink. Until <laughs> someone goes, I'm in recovery. And then they go, ooh. <laughs> almost Get like, away oh, from me. I might be catching. My, my work here is done. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. It was a really, really um, yeah, funny <laughs> sketch. But also just so true how much people are just like, go on, go on. Go on, go on, and then uh-huh. well, actually, yep. I'm in recovery now. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you know, like... Well, even then, sometimes they say, "Well, you can have just one." I know. So this is the whole grey area drinking thing, though, isn't it? Where, yep. you know, and and how I think the problem is as well, people who maybe haven't experienced addiction, because I always have to be quite careful how I talk about because I don't. I've, well, I very, very rarely drink. I might have like a couple of drinks a year that's it Mm -hmm. because it kicks off my depression so for me it was just a a clear choice um Uh but it was quite easy because I didn't have the do you know I mean I didn't have an addiction to deal with on on top of that and Mm -hmm. I think the addiction part is a completely different conversation isn't it it's it's a whole nother 
thing that you've got to deal with it's not just the social pressures and people maybe thinking you're a bit of a weirdo because you don't have a glass of wine or whatever <laughs> so no, maybe people got better friends than <laughs> but you know certain circles you're like it's, it's a bit odd not to have a glass of wine with dinner or whatever but um but then you also have this kind of addiction which is a completely different thing and I think addiction is very misunderstood as an illness it is very misunderstood and it's not so much how often you drink, nice. it's what happens when you drink. That's and it nice. is the reason for drinking. Yeah. People people drink and take drugs to kill pain. Yes. And if you drink, the first time I ever got drunk, I felt fabulous. Mm. No pain. There was no pain. And I had lived my whole life with pain. It's a great anesthetic, isn't it? Oh, it's awesome in the beginning. And then the thing is, it's the thing that I went back to mm. because it kills pain. I understand the disease of alcoholism very well now. Mm. And part of that is because I became one myself. But I, I know now that my dad didn't drink because me. He didn't drink because I was a bad kid. He drank because he had a disease. Mm. My husband didn't drink because of me or because I was a bad wife. He drank because he had a disease. Mm. And both of them had probably started drinking early in their teens. And it just escalated and just, and that's the thing about alcoholism. It is so progressive. Yeah. It starts out innocently enough, but then it just progresses. I think it's quite an easy one as well isn't it like if you're quite a sociable person and you know so what I go to have a few drinks with my friends after work or you know like you can kind to a certain extent you can kind of create a persona where you're just that really fun outgoing person and people wouldn't necessarily know the levels of of where you're at with it you know and it's it's very very tricky the other side of that coin is if you're an introverted person and you're not comfortable around people, mm -hmm. two drinks will help you immensely. I, I think that was half my thing why I drank so much because I never knew I had social anxiety. And I'm, yes. very, I'm very sociable, I love people. Uh -huh. um, but I had such bad social anxiety and I would always uh -huh. feel so much exactly that once I got, you know, it was almost like the first drink would just be like, get it down me. <laughs> And then, yes. and then the Sit second one, so I can join this crowd. <laughs> and then the second one, I'd start to relax. And by the third drink, I was like, "Oh, well, you're, you're dancing on table." Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Yes, very. <laughs> so I guess I would love to know if you could go back because I mean, you've just had some insane experiences if you could go back and share a piece of advice with a younger you what do you think you might say to that younger version of yourself i would tell her she's beautiful in fact one time i walked in my mother's house and there was a picture of me when i was about six laying on the table and i looked at that picture and i said to my mother well she wasn't ugly that was the first recognition I had of that. Wow. I would tell her she was beautiful. I would tell her that things that people do 
don't necessarily have anything at all to do with her. Mm. It has to do with who they are and what's driving them. Yes. And nothing to do with who she is. And I would tell her that God loves her, always has and always will, and that he's not a punishing God. He's not there with his lightning bolts. (laughs) He's there with his light hug. Hug yeah. gun. Instead <laughs> <laughs> of his lightning bolts. <laughs> yep, yep. I love that. And what one thing do you wish you'd known before, you know, before you got to the point of, of suicide? Um, what one thing do you wish you'd known about suicide now that you've out the other side? About suicide? I wish that I would have known that my husband's behavior wasn't about me. Mm. That um, suicide is not the answer. Mm. I can't even, when I think about that now, and I think about leaving a four-year-old motherless, Mm. it still takes my breath away. How could I have even been that desperate? Yeah. How could I have even believed that I was so bad that my four-year-old son would be better off without a mother. Yeah. But it's- and that's when I work with people who are contemplating suicide, I always ask them, what do you have to live for? Mm. And then they tell me. I got my dog. If I didn't take care of him, he'd die. Mm. I got my mother. She probably would miss me a lot. So we start exploring who needs you. Yeah. Because one of the things people who are contemplating suicide need to hear is who needs them. Yeah. Who loves them. Yeah. And I think, you know, just knowing that you're worthy of life. Uh Uh-huh. You know, like it's such a fascinating thing. Like when I look back through how I used to think about myself when I was in those spaces. Uh-huh. Oh, God. You know, it's so, so horrible. When you look back, you're like, how was I so horrible to myself? How could you? Yeah. yeah. How could I? And you sort of like want to hug yourself. You want to be like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you're so amazing. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know any, I didn't know any different. I didn't know any better. And I didn't, right. you know, I didn't know about depression or anxiety I didn't know that I had it I didn't know about trauma I didn't know about any of these things that can affect you Uh and so you do internalize it don't you and you think there's something wrong with me there's you know there's something innately wrong with me and then you you realize some years later looking in the mirror going I'm awesome (laughs) 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 there's something wrong with how I was thinking about myself (laughs) in the world not that you don't have to believe all those horrible thoughts that are like no no you you know (laughs) you're like oh okay right so I didn't have to trust that all those thoughts that were being really horrible to me okay and I don't have to allow people to treat me in that way okay and I don't have Right. And suddenly you're like, oh, I get it now. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, fam. Oh, this has been so good to talk to you and hear your story. I mean, it's just been absolutely fascinating. I feel like we need to do another 17 episodes to get all the rest of the story. <laughs> but um, was there anything that you wish that I'd asked you that I didn't get a chance to or anything that you'd love to share with anyone that's listening? 
I think the most important thing is to understand that addiction and mental health do have answers, Mm -hmm. that there is no such thing as a worthless person, that compassion for people is so very important. And it's easy to judge somebody who is drunk. It's easy to judge somebody who is asking, acting crazy. But that's just a way of trying to feel superior to them Mm. and to reach out and say, what can I do to support you is probably the most important thing you can do. Yeah, to see the human. I think it's that thing of seeing the humanity. Uh Uh-huh. You know, and realizing there's underneath that addiction, underneath the alcoholism, underneath that behavior, whatever that behavior is, there's a, there's a person. And generally, her, yeah, so some of these sayings, you know, when you're like, oh, I'm about to say it, and then I hear myself saying, it, and I'm like, oh, that's so cheesy, but it's so true. So then you're like, <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> yeah, say it anyway. So it's like hurt people, hurt people. Absolutely. And I think when you, you know, I think it was key what you said you know this had nothing to do with me the way my dad behaved the way my husband behaved the way you know the way people behave has nothing to do with you you might trigger something within them you know in a sense but it's their trigger yes they have to own that you know and it's when we when you start to realize that and can create you know that that was a real powerful thing for me when I started to learn meditation to become the observer uh-huh. And to be able to see things, you know, from a bit more of a bird's eye view instead of being right up in it. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, this hasn't yes. got anything to do with me. I don't need to get angry about this. They're, <laughs> they're, they're just in pain. If they're being rude to me or they're being horrible to me or they're, they're trying to put something on me, I call it the yes. gift of shit. <laughs> <laughs> give it back. You know what I mean, they're trying to give you a gift of shit. You can just be like, I don't want your yeah, shit. Yeah. Thanks. Like... <laughs> I'm, I'll happily like be compassionate towards you and maybe I can help you through your shit, but I don't need to carry it for you. Uh-huh. <laughs> you no, putting it on my back. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your incredible story. And Thank you for allowing being me. being so open and everything. If people want to find you, Evelyn, how do they, what's the best way for them to, to find you and find your books? And I have a website. It is www.evelynlady.com. Fab. And I have books on Amazon. Actually, I have them in several different areas, and they're actually being sold in the UK. Fab. So I, I've gotten a few sales over there. Nice. Um, we have some US listeners as well, so you'll be all right. <laughs> that would be good. I'll see you guys. I'll see you in the US. <laughs> and of course, they can find me on Facebook. Fab. Just oh, under Evelyn Lady. I will put all the links below as well. Thank you so much. It really has been an absolute joy talking to you. And to all the listeners, as always, I will speak to you again really soon. Much love. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as Rachel enjoys making this podcast. Why not share it with a friend in need of some heartwarming inspiration? And if you really love it, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts as it really helps us reach and inspire more people. Thanks for listening. You have totally got this.